Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. This week, we have a very special episode for you. We're going to take a look at a pivotal event in the history of the Times Union editorial board. I'm going to let Times Union editor Casey Seiler take it from here. I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. This week, the members of the Electoral College met in Albany and across the nation to cast their votes for president, a process that, despite the effort of some of President Donald Trump's supporters, is almost certainly going to lead to next month's formal vote by the House of Representatives, making Joe Biden our next president. As we do every four years, the nation is engaged in a debate over what exactly the Electoral College is for and whether or not we would be better served by going to a straight proportional allocation of each state's electoral votes, depending on how each candidate performs in the general election, or scrapping the whole thing and just going with a national popular vote since this is supposed to be a democracy and whatnot. All this took me back four years to the night I was watching TV at home and looked at my phone to discover that the Times Union, where I was at that time the political editor and in that role, had covered the national political conventions, had just posted an editorial calling for the electors ostensibly pledged to Donald Trump to vote for someone else. That's right, the paper's editorial board was calling for those electors to turn away from the will of the voters in their respective states. It was at that time the first editorial in a mainstream newspaper to make such a call, and it was kind of a big deal. Spoiler alert, Donald Trump became president. In this special episode of The Eagle, we're going to examine the process of how that editorial came to be, and whether anyone who took part has any second thoughts about it, considering the current context of an election that some are disputing. It's a story that shines a light on how an editorial board functions, and hopefully will dispel some of the misconceptions people have about the difference between opinion writing and straight news reporting. But first, here's a part of that editorial read by my predecessor, Rex Smith, who was part of the editorial board that composed it. On Monday, members of the Electoral College will gather in each state to select a president. We call on them, particularly Republican electors, to deny Donald Trump the presidency, as the Constitution allows and as the Founding Fathers envisioned for a candidate so antithetical to their aspirations for the nation's highest office. We do not ask this lightly. We realize that millions of people, including many of our readers, voted for Mr. Trump. Some liked him or embraced his stances on issues. Others saw him as a change from business as usual or wanted to send a message or just didn't like Democrat Hillary Clinton or the other alternatives. And we realize that passions are high and such a move by the Electoral College would further inflame them. Yet this is precisely what the founders of our Republic envisioned when they devised the Electoral College, a singular body with a singular purpose to afford as Alexander Hamilton explained to the people of New York in Federalist Number 68, quote, a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Mr. Hamilton almost seems to have anticipated Mr. Trump 
a rich developer and reality show host with a flair for publicity in defending a process designed to guard against someone with, quote, talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity. In calling for the Electoral College to reject Mr. Trump, we have no expectation that electors will choose Mrs. Clinton, whom we endorsed, though an argument could be made for defaulting to the candidate who so decisively won the popular vote. Perhaps they could choose a compromise candidate from the Republican Party, such as Governor John Kasich of Ohio or House Speaker Paul Ryan of Wisconsin. Or electors could simply deny Mr. Trump the 270 votes he needs. Then, the Constitution specifies, the president would be elected by the House of Representatives. Whatever choice they make, we beseech them to see that there is one thing that separates a demagogue from a despot, a bigot from a tyrant, a chaotic candidacy from a disastrous presidency. Power. To grant it to Mr. Trump is to put our republic in peril. Our nation's founders understood both the benefits and risks of democracy and wisely built a safety valve into our Constitution. If there was ever a moment to use it, it is now. In 2016, the newspaper's editorial board consisted of then Times Union editor Rex Smith, as well as Jay Jocknowitz, who edits the opinion pages, associate editor Mike Spain, who's now retired, senior editor and reader representative Tina Tyler, and editor-at-large Harry Rosenfeld. George Hurst, the publisher of the Times Union, is on the board but doesn't usually take part in its twice-weekly meetings where the topics of the editorials, as well as the paper's stance on each one, are planned out. Jay describes the process. So it, it starts, I think, with everybody being as informed as they can, uh, doing a lot of reading before, um, beforehand, keeping up with the news as the week goes by, reading the TU every day, you know, but also uh, you know, gathering as much from a variety of sources as we can. And then you know, we put together in our uh, heads an idea of what issues sound like things that we want to weigh in on. I mean, there's lots of things we care about, but you know, what what are issues that qualify as something the paper should have a position on that we feel we ought to say something about? And then, um, you know, mechanically, you know, just the very very nuts and bolts of it. We meet uh, Mondays and Thursdays usually, and um, bring our lists to this meeting and hash it out. Rex says the panel tries to reach consensus on fairly controversial matters. We take particular interest in the Times Union in local and state issues, of course, uh, because that's where our reporting is strongest. That's where our staff is focused. But when there are national or foreign issues that we think have real relevance for our readers, where we think the voice of the newspaper can add something to the conversation, we take a position. Our position is reached by a consensus of those editorial board members. We try not to ever be in a position where we have to take a majority vote. I like to think of it as being like a Quaker meeting. Quakers make decisions by consensus, but if someone is standing in the way of the consensus, that person by tradition will stand aside, as they say. The presence of the editor of the paper on the editorial board is a practice that isn't universal. 
Other outlets treat the newsroom and the editorial board as entirely separate territories. And there are many outlets, the Wall Street Journal, perhaps most notably, where the newsroom balks at some of the opinions of the editorial page. That is not something that we follow because we have found it very valuable to have the counsel of the editor in reaching decisions. Sometimes the editor knows that there is more reporting coming that we can draw from to have a more mature decision coming. Sometimes we will ask the editor for just some additional insight into what led the reporting to this. So we think it's a good asset for us. And I would say significantly, we want to have the voices of the editors of the paper over these last uh, 40 years, Harry Rosenfeld, Jeff Cohen, me, and Casey Seiler. We've wanted to have those voices as a part of the editorial board. So we've always had that one link, but there is nothing that the reporters have to do with this. And we're very proud to say that the reporting of the Times Union is absolutely straightforward, does not have bias. There are methods of journalistic standards, there are practices in the newsroom, and there is the great tradition of American journalism that keeps our reporting straightforward, but our opinions, we hope, uh, powerful and, and useful. Mike Spain, who retired in 2018 after a 40-year career at the Times Union and its sibling publication, the Knickerbocker News, says there's a valuable point to this daily exercise. Editorials are intended to raise awareness, to provoke discussion, and hopefully affect, help affect some change and call attention to issues that need to be addressed. Sometimes Hopefully, we offer solutions. That would be the ideal. And if the solution can be persuasive enough, we can achieve something. But at least they're supposed to be provocative. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States. And we are going to make our country great again. So tell me about what you remember about December 2016 and the, the process that led to the publication of this particular editorial, which is, I, I think it's fair to say, singular and remains so. As an editorial board, we were, frankly, aghast at the notion that Donald Trump was a serious contender for the presidency. We took the rare step of endorsing in the presidential primary. We endorsed John Kasich in the New York State primary and Hillary Clinton in the uh, Democratic side. And when Donald Trump emerged as the nominee, we were astounded. We thought that this wasn't someone whom New York Republicans would naturally embrace. Because frankly, many of us have followed Donald Trump's career. We're New Yorkers. We have seen him as a real estate developer. We knew his character. We knew his reputation for <clears throat> lying. We knew that this was not someone with the seriousness of purpose to be president. So we were very concerned about the notion that he might be president and assumed, as the pollsters did, as the political pundits did, that he wouldn't be elected. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton.
She congratulated us. It's about us on our victory. When he emerged with the majority of electoral votes seeming to be assured, that is, when he emerged with 306 votes in the Electoral College, we were honestly depressed. Uh, our editorial board at the time felt that this was very bad for the country. And uh, we at first didn't think there was much we could do about it. But as the a couple of weeks went by after the election and we began to see what that Donald Trump was not going to pivot is the word that everyone was using in those days. Oh, he'll pivot as soon as he's elected. He'll become serious. When we saw that that wasn't going to happen, we thought, well, why do we have an electoral college if it's not to protect us from this kind of a candidate? Jay Jocknowitz picks up the story. I'm, I'm going to be really interesting interested to see how this podcast turns out because it's going to be like that uh, Kurosawa film where everybody has a different version of what happened. Rashomon. Yes, Rashomon. My recollection of this is that in the weeks after the election and leading up to the Electoral College, it was becoming really apparent to all of us that Donald Trump was unfit for the presidency. I think we all shared that view. And so importantly, America will start winning again, bigly. We're gonna win again. I, I was wondering if there was an argument to be made that yeah, I thought it was rather outrageous when I first thought of it, that the Electoral College um, might vote for someone else. And, and there had been, you know, a little uh, rustling in the political uh, leaves about that. I'd heard it in some social media and stuff, but I didn't take it seriously. Mike Spain describes some of the questions that the editorial board members had. Can they vote for somebody else? Are they re required legally to, to vote for the, the party name? That generated a little more discussion, a little bit of research, and the answer was that they did mostly have the right to vote their conscience. Let me give you an example. Say a president-elect committed a horrible crime and it was revealed after the election but before he would be sworn into office. You know, let's say he went out on Fifth Avenue and shot somebody. We were saying, well, this is what we saw before the election. The man is utterly unprepared to lead this country and now he's demonstrated by his choices already and his demeanor already and his behavior already that everything we worried about looks like it's true. This is an extreme existential threat to our democracy, and we should urge people to ponder this right. I ended up pulling out the Federalist Papers and doing a search, there's a few sites you can do this on, to look at what was the, what was the genesis of the Electoral College, what was the whole reason for it. And when I read this, it was just like you know a light bulb going off. There was no ambiguity about this. The point of the Electoral College in the view of the Founding Fathers was a break. It was to avoid the election of a person of, as I think the phrase they used was low political arts. You know, someone who they understood could make a you know, very wide populist appeal, but was not fit for the office. And that is exactly what the Electoral College was about. And it was to, if necessary, um, go against the popular will to do the right thing. And I took that to the editorial board, I explained the sketch of it, 
And I really had no idea because I realized this was way, this was a pretty extreme idea uh, for us to do to say that the Electoral College should, should not elect the president. It wasn't violating the will of the people because Clinton had won the popular vote, but it was turning the election on its head somewhat. And I was surprised. They looked at me and said, let's do it. At the time, Tina Tyler was the only woman on the editorial board. She says reaching consensus on this particular editorial was especially important. This was a bigger deal than the average zoning board decision. So I remember there being a lot of conversation because we wanted to make sure that the position was in keeping with editorial, our editorial voice, not just for that 2016 election, but historically, and to make sure that it was something that could be legitimately argued and defensible in future years, like now, four years later. With that in mind, Rex told the editorial board that he was going to brief George Hurst on their thinking. My agreement with the, with the publisher has always been that if there is something important that is going to give them a headache the next day, if there's something where the uh, reputation of the paper may be involved, uh, where the community will be uh, significantly responding to editorials. I just want the publisher to know about it. That night I went into George's office to have a conversation with him and said, I think you should know what the editorial board is talking about and sketched out for him what we were thinking and what some of the arguments were. It wasn't a long conversation and George was intrigued. I don't know what political party George is enrolled in. I've always thought of him as being a pretty conservative guy, but he's always been absolutely committed to the Times Union as a truth teller. He has never been a publisher who interferes with our editorial judgment. Uh, that is, he doesn't uh, try to stop us from plunging forward with reporting that can really make a difference in our community. And I don't believe that I can recall a time when he has stood in the way of an editorial but I thought if there was one that we wanted to do that he might wish to stop, this could surely be it. The next morning, George came down to Jay Jocknowitz's office and joined the editorial board meeting. I got a phone call up in my office and Rex and, and Jay and Mike Spain, Tina Tyler were huddled up in Jay's office. And they asked me to come down that they were having some uh, difficulty getting to kind of consensus uh, on a position. And so I uh, wandered on down and understood their angst and uh, some of the differing opinions and perceptions as to where we were in the country and kind of where we were as a newspaper and an editorial board. And it occurred to me that uh, a fellow that was a missing member of the board at the time, Harry Rosenfeld, uh, had talked uh, in New York City on an event that I had hosted for the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. Not to interrupt the publisher, but it's worth pausing here to say a little more about Harry Rosenfeld. Harry's father was a Jewish furrier in Berlin who managed to get his family out of Germany in the late 1930s. Harry's storied career in journalism is told in two memoirs, From Kristallnacht to Watergate, Memoirs of a Newspaperman, and Battling Editor, an account of his 18-year tenure as editor-in-chief of the Times Union. 
Harry came to Albany in 1978 after serving as an assistant managing editor of the Washington Post, where he hired an ambitious young reporter named Bob Woodward and oversaw Woodward and Carl Bernstein's coverage of the Watergate scandal from the Metro desk. If you've seen the movie All the President's Men, Harry is played by Jack Warden. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story now, don't f it up. Harry was 87 in December 2016, now 91, he's still a vocal and vital member of the editorial board. I have a recording of Harry demolishing a local elected official during an edit board meeting that I keep on my phone to listen to whenever I need to have my spine stiffened. Sitting with the editorial board four years ago, George recalled how Harry had spoken at the archive's benefit about his life story. What he had done at the kind of the last portion of his presentation, he went way off script. And this was October of 2016. So this was before the election, but we knew where the election was going, right? Uh, and so we knew who the, the contenders were. And he put out a very, very vivid and stern warning to uh, the audience assembled that day. And he articulated kind of his top 10 reasons why we should avoid at all cost uh, electing or accepting the election of a fellow like Donald Trump. And so now we're back fast forward to the meeting that's going on down in Jay's office. And I thought that uh, the best thing to do to bring clarity to the debate that the, the board was kind of wrestling with was to call Harry on the phone. Here's Harry recalling what he told the audience the archives benefit and repeated that day for the editorial board. And I told the group there, a distinguished group of guests, sort of executive type guests, what I made of the election. And it, what struck me was the connection, the similarities between Trump's behavior and that of Adolf Hitler and his rise to power in Nazi Germany. And I gave the details of that, including this fact that, that you know, he's attacking the media. That's exactly what Hitler did in exactly the same terms, the lying press. Uh, his attacks on a, taking a singling out a minority to put or heap all the nation's problems and ills on as a scapegoat. Before that meeting wrapped up, George and other members of the board encouraged Harry to put his thoughts into a column, which ran a short time after the editorial. Here's how Harry began it. Boy and man, I have been caught up in presidential elections since Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran against Wendell Wilkie in 1940. As an 11-year-old, a refugee from Nazi Germany, my first American presidential contest fascinated me. In my part of the Bronx, FDR was idolized and supported in his bid to shatter the then unwritten two-term limit rule. Over the decades, I have never disengaged, and as a newspaper man, I was paid to pay attention. 
During those years, Americans lived through some bitter fights, including the rise and fall of Richard M. Nixon. With that background in mind, I say that neither you nor I have lived through anything resembling the campaign and election of Donald J. Trump. By the time Harry was done talking, the publisher and the editorial board were in alignment. The way these conversations go in the editorial board, people talk about things. Jay is taking notes, I'm taking notes. It is really, uh, for most editorials, it is Jay's responsibility to write the editorial that reflects the opinion of the board. Once he has done that, the editorial comes to me for editing, for review, and then it goes out the night before it's published to the whole editorial board uh, so that people can express views or uh, offer changes, uh, occasionally catch uh, copy editing errors that Jay and I haven't. So Jay set to work on what was, I think, safe to say, I think it's safe to say what was the most powerful editorial uh, of his uh, career. Certainly the most memorable and certainly one that uh, evoked the most response to my knowledge. Does Jay agree with this assessment? This one is, it was definitely up there uh, in the top three that I'll remember from my career. It was a bold editorial for us to write. I was uh, really proud and really, really gratified that, that everybody on the board was behind it. I was really, really um, kind of amazed that, that George, not, not that he went along with it, but that knowing the consequences that he didn't hesitate on that. And even after the consequences became apparent, we had a lot of blowback on it. Even even after that, he stood by it. He said, I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> so, you know, kind of let me know about you know, angry calls and so forth. But he said, I'm just so proud we did this. To give you a sense of that blowback, the editorial went up online around dinner time on Wednesday, December 14th, and appeared in print the next day, which was an interesting one for our publisher. Now, the next morning, I got into my office around 8 a.m., and uh, the circulation director came down to my office and said, we are hemorrhaging subscriptions. We have lost 85 subscriptions by 8 a.m. in the morning, and it was going to the bottom of the ocean. And so I'm thinking, wow, that's an interesting reaction. And they mounted. And so the closer we got to the noon hour, we were up to a couple hundred. Now, our customer service reps are pretty handy at saving a disgruntled subscriber reader. Uh, and uh, you know, we can save about eight in 10 by kind of talking through the issues and maybe uh, trying to accommodate them with the pricing incentive or something like that. Well, about uh, one o'clock in the afternoon, we're up to about 250. And then a representative of my uh, advertising department came into the office and said, we just lost a half a million dollar ad contract due to a disgruntled advertiser who doesn't agree with our editorial. Now I'm thinking, wow, you know, how far is this going to go? And, you know, you can see the tsunami kind of building out at sea a couple hundred miles out, you know, heading at, at light speed to crash against our shore. And interestingly enough, we had a comment uh, utility that was attached to the editorial. And we started to see 
comments coming in quite favorable to the courage it was taking the time you need to take this you know kind of standout position and all of a sudden there was a conversation going on amongst the commenters that were saying you know this newspaper's got it this newspaper's you know on the right path here and you know we would encourage you to take this prescription and so there was this banter going back and forth across the comments and all of a sudden our circulation department was getting uh, unsolicited calls to start the newspaper i think we ended the day up against where we started in the morning and uh, i took it upon myself to uh, call the disgruntled advertiser and we were able to save the half a million dollar contract tina tyler says she heard from readers as well i remember there being a pretty good volume in terms of phone calls and emails and as the reader representative on the board i handle our letters to the editor and there were dozens uh, it was such a volume that we ended up dedicating a page in the Sunday perspective section following this editorial for those letters. And, you know, of the dozens we received, we probably printed a good 12. So we had people that thanked us for having the courage. And then we had people who argued, it was interesting, this prompted people to argue again for ranked choice voting or to abolish the electoral college. And then my favorite of the disagree with us. Um, quote, the Times Union editorial board wants to jam it down the throats of those who are enthusiastically hoping and praying that Trump can put brakes on several country wrecking policies. Policies like illegal immigration with totally open borders, sanctuary cities, job killing and budget busting healthcare costs and doubling the national debt are ones to start with. So it was, it was pretty vociferous. And so here we are four years later as President Trump and many of his supporters, including hundreds of elected officials, are expressing support for the notion of invalidating the votes of millions of people in swing states through legal claims of improper voting procedures or baseless charges of fraud. These people want to go further than socialism. They want to go into a communistic form of government, and I have no doubt about it. They rigged our presidential election, but we will still win it. We will still win it. As of this taping, those efforts have been rebuffed by courts up to and including the U.S. Supreme Court. But it seemed worth asking the editorial board to compare what they called for in December 2016, having electors turn away from the voters who wanted them to support Trump, with what almost all the president's men and women have been asking the judiciary to do this time around. Here's Jay Jocknowitz fielding that question. How does it square with what we wrote four years ago? If, if it was okay four years ago, why isn't it okay now? You know, that's the essential argument. And my answer is, is the one I give people a lot, which is not everything is like everything else. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a whataboutism that drives that question. I have this to show you why this is just another flip, flip side of what you, you did or said or whatever. Donald Trump, he was unique. He was a singularly unfit person to be president. It would be ridiculous to argue that in every election, 
it's just okay to upend the whole thing and do whatever the electoral college wants. That's, that's absurd. So pe- when people make that argument to me, I say, you know, Donald Trump is not Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not Donald Trump. We were correct in our position. And if you go back to the argument that I started with, with the editorial board, if you go back to the founding fathers, they didn't say the electoral college is there to upend the will of the people every time they vote. It was to keep a particularly bad person from becoming president. I only wish the electoral college had paid some attention to our arguments. And I wish that if we are going to have an electoral college, that it would perform the function in these rare circumstances that to my knowledge we've seen perhaps only once in American history. Circumstance where someone has won the states that could give him the presidency, but where he's not qualified for the presidency by the judgment that I think electors ought to be making as the serious stewards of American history. So I don't think that the situations are similar. Uh, Donald Trump now is raising fraudulent claims. He has never, in fact, in court raised any evidence that there's election fraud because there is no such evidence. So his claim that he should remain as president is uh, based purely on ambition, uh, not on reason. I don't think that's at all what we were talking about. We were talking about someone uniquely unqualified to be president and uh, history as a judge, underscores the value of that editorial, I think. So last Sunday, the Times Union's editorial board, now including the paper's new editor, me, revisited the 2016 editorial. Here's an excerpt read by Akeem Norder, Rex Smith, Tina Tyler, Jay Jocknowitz, Chris Churchill, and Harry Rosenfeld. As we wrote four years ago, Mr. Trump is exactly the sort of person with talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity that Alexander Hamilton warned of in the Federalist Papers in explaining the Electoral College role. He embodies the kind of person the founders feared in the presidency, beset with foreign entanglements as Mr. Trump was with Russia and Ukraine, and incompetent in the job as he has proven to be notably in the COVID-19 pandemic, which on Wednesday claimed more American lives than the invasion of Normandy or 9-11. Mr. Trump's main concern with the pandemic seems less the lives lost than the praise he's not getting for his handling of it. This lack of competent, responsible leadership should serve as a reminder to the members of the Electoral College that, as Mr. Hamilton wrote, good government is its aptitude and tendency to produce a good administration. In Mr. Trump, voters have seen a president obsessed with the attainment and often cruel wielding of power, not the proper use of it for the good of the country. In Mr. Biden, they could see a future president serious about the pandemic and many other challenges facing the country, from repairing the economy to tackling climate change to restoring America's respect in the world. Come Monday, electors have a chance to correct the mistake they made in 2016 to help put the country back on course and to assure voters that our democracy through it all endures. 
So that's the story of one editorial. I have no illusions that it will comfort the many supporters of our current president who believe that the paper has it in for him. We get that a lot. The only response, of course, is that it's the editorial board that's criticizing him, basing each of its opinions on a sound foundation of facts. The same editorial board has on numerous occasions over the past four years gone after Democrats, from mayors and state lawmakers to Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has at times had cause to feel as aggrieved at the board as Trump supporters might. But this is the first episode of The Eagle to tell the story of an editorial. Its usual subjects come from the other side of the newsroom, or would if we were currently working from a newsroom. That's where the reporters, photographers, and editors are working to hammer out the daily news report, which unlike the opinion pages are, as you've heard Rex describe it, absolutely straightforward and as free a bias as we can make it. You might disagree, but that's your opinion, and you're welcome to it. That's it for this week on The Eagle. Thanks for listening. To read the editorials mentioned in this episode of the podcast, visit timesunion.com or check us out anytime on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Instagram for the latest news and features.